You're listening to the Samuel Andreev podcast. When I was about 16 years old, I bought a used LP of the Juilliard Quartet playing music of the Second Viennese School. It included a beautiful recording of Arnold Schoenberg's Fourth Quartet. It's no exaggeration to say that that experience changed my life forever. But it's also no exaggeration to say that Schoenberg utterly transformed the course of music in the 20th century, and that he still exerts a profound influence on countless musicians all over the world. On the occasion of the 70th anniversary of his passing in 1951, it is my great privilege to speak with the composer's son, Larry Schoenberg. Larry, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for doing this. I'm very glad to be here. I'm going to start with a broad question, but it's something that I'm intensely curious about, and I think you are uniquely positioned to be able to answer this. It's been said countless times through the decades that your father is one of the most influential, but also one of the most controversial composers of the 20th century. In your view, what is the state of his reputation in 2021? Right now, I think based on what I uh, am involved in, namely the Schoenberg Center in Vienna and uh, all of the media information that I get, I think he's completely well established that there are uh, enormous advantages given uh, what is happening in, with the media today that his life and his works are being disseminated more and more. It's much easier for people to, to listen to his work, to his music, to uh, read what he wrote, to uh, look at his paintings, uh, to find out all of the extra musical things that he had done. And much of that is because of the uh, center in Vienna, which houses uh, his legacy. So I think uh, based on uh, my experience, and I need to start off and mention that I was uh, 10 years old when he died, and it's 70 years since he died. So from what I've experienced, uh, things are going uh, extremely, extremely well from, from my perspective. Of course, there's always, uh, there's, I, I try not to focus on the negative things. There's always that. But there's so many positive things right now that are happening. We've gone through this uh, uh, year and two years of the pandemic, which, of course, have minimized the number of, uh, obviously, or excluded most of the performances that were scheduled. But uh, in spite of that, and and interestingly enough, the through the center in Vienna, they did something that my father would always have done. They took advantage of a situation that uh, at least one could say is not desirable and looked for solutions and to improve things based on a situation that was not, that was a difficult at best to disseminate information about, about his, his works and his life. And in that respect, uh, they've used the uh, media, all the technical aspects of videos and audios and etc and created uh online exhibitions etc which is just some sort of spectacular things that they've that they've been able to do and that's completely consistent with what he would have done he was always looking for a solution to a problem and he 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 define it and then he'd look for well what can i do even though things may not be what 
may not be in the perfect situation, he would he would then resolve those. And that those are things I can actually remember as a child. Uh, that that if there was a, if there was a difficulty or if there was some kind of uh, uh, in in a small way, and as a child, I remember things mainly things that he would build. So he would construct things out of what we would call scraps. And uh, this is just a, one of the characteristics of him that I, that I saw early on in the games that he made for us, for his children. And it, it's consistent with what's happening, and the consequences for that are, are wonderful right now because, as I say, in a time when one wouldn't have expected uh, his life and his works to, to, to get better known. They, they are, they've been able to do things with the, at the center and I, and other places, uh, where they've been able to use the technology of today to actually compensate for the lack of live performances. Yeah, that, that is of course an amazing thing for musicians all over the world, that there have been many things that have allowed us to maintain some semblance of a musical culture, despite the fact that there are no live performances right now. But so so you're you're arguing that these technological advances have made it so that your father's music is more accessible than it ever has been. I wonder, has it also made it easier to approach? Because one of the things, and this is a bit of a cliche, and so I don't want to stay on this for very long, but one of the things that was often written about him in the past is that the music could be difficult to approach for an uninitiated listener. Do you think that that's gotten a little bit easier now? Oh, well, it certainly has. And, and of course, we're, I think almost everyone would agree with how important repetition is. It's one's now able to listen to uh, really excellent recordings. I, and just the other day, I was listening to the string trio, and and I then I I had the option of going and uh, just listening to a number of different recordings of it. And for the uninitiated, it's easy. <laughs> it's easy to do that, and it's certainly allows one to uh, solve that problem, which he thought of. He often said, what was, there was some phrase, my music is not modern. It's merely badly played. Well, <laughs> well, now one has the option if one, if one listens to a, a performance of a work and it doesn't sound right, one does have the option of listening to it maybe played in a in a more um, inspiring way. Um, and that that's something I, you know, obviously one couldn't do. I, I mean, I personally feel that when one presents concerts, not, not just of his work, but uh, I'm thinking specifically of some of his works, but new works by contemporary composers, that one should perform the work, discuss it maybe, and then perform it again. And that's the event, or that would be the concert. I have problems that I'm not a musician and when I go to a, a concert and I hear three or four different new works and it's my failing I'm not able to remember the first work or, the, or maybe just I get I'm it's really confusing so I've always thought in a didactic sort of way that the events and this is something that I hope we're going to do and we have been doing a little bit at the center in Vienna 
and it's not the conventional concert, but it's where you present a work and then maybe discuss it, maybe not, and then present it again, and then goodbye. <laughs> Go home and think about it or, or see what's in your memory. So it's it's repetition, I think, and that's the obvious reason why it's nice to have, a, especially if it's a new work. And for him, for some of his works, they're new for people. So even for him, it would be a good idea. I mean, the string trio is actually a, a good example where you would perform it and you might uh, talk about some of the things that are related to it and then you would perform it again a second time. I'm glad you mentioned the string trio. I actually listened to that piece again last night. And it's a piece that I've always been fascinated with. It's, it's, it's an amazing piece of music. It can be difficult to get a handle on, I think, if you're approaching it for the first time, just because there's such a wealth of ideas in that piece. It's so extraordinarily rich. But one thing that really struck me last night, hearing it again, was just how intensely expressive it is. And I think you can enter into that expressivity instantly, even if you've never heard a note of his music. Okay. If you could see me right now, you would... You'd see me smiling because I often hear people say, and it's, it is a cliche, you know, his music is not expressive. It's not emotional. <laughs> and I, and I wonder what emotions they're looking for when they, when they make that statement. But uh, that's something I've not as a child, obviously, but you know, later on in life, I've just hear all of these things that seem so, contradictory to me in the sense that they're not what I, how I would describe it. But in, in the string trio, certainly that's, that's about as emotional. And that's, I would use the word emotional because of how it relates to me and how he described parts of it. But uh, when I hear these, some of these comments, it's, that's sort of a strange thing. I don't have the luxury of being fair and objective because of my last name. So I do have biases, obviously. Well, it's, it's certainly always struck me as strange that anyone would say that the music is overly cerebral or that it's not emotional or that it's mathematical, which is another one that you yeah. hear sometimes. Yeah. I, I, I wonder actually where that comes from, that idea, because it's certainly not anywhere to be found in the music and it's not anywhere to be found in your father's writings either. It's very peculiar. It's also with the music of Anton Weber, and there's something very similar that happened where he became known as this exclusively intellectual figure, whereas in fact, his music is absolutely steeped in Viennese culture, and it's intensively ex expressive and lyrical. Where did this idea come from? Where did it originate that, that this music is somehow cerebral more than emotional? I, I think uh, to some degree that may have come out of... Um analysis or university at universities where this was the um yeah you have to you have to use words there you 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 don't tell the students to sit down and just listen so they once you're using the words and the, and the descriptions then you borrow these the simplest things you can do um so you use these uh i guess if you're talking about uh composition with 12 tones, you can use what he would have never have done and didn't ever do, but you would use these uh, mechanical processes. And I, I tend to think these are people that, well, 
um, this is going to sound a little arrogant, but that don't understand mathematics and don't understand music that make these comments the strong, the ones that make it the strongest. I mean, to because something has a mathematical model, that's all all music does. That doesn't make it mathematical. So I I think it also gives people a, an opportunity. The ones that want to that feel very negative about it, it gives them an opportunity to express it something pejorative in that sense because they're not saying it's mathematical as something being good. Um, there's another possibility, and I, I, I don't know. Again, I, I need to mention that I'm not a musician, but somehow I think for some composers and some conductors have interpreted it in a mechanical way. You know, his whole life he kept saying over and over again that it's not 12-tone composition, the 12-tone compositions. And so, I mean, he, he said that in many, 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 many different ways. But, of course, the way he said it, the, the loudest and the strongest was in the music itself. So it's the verbalization that creates the problem. If people would just listen to it and forget about attaching the words or sticking words to it and just listen, I think that that would solve it. But your your question was where did it come from? I you know, it's many sources. People that felt uncomfortable with it and had to react verbally in, in some way. And so that's but university maybe I think you'd probably know better than I would. That sounds right to me. I think it, it it's it's a difficult thing to talk about in a way because of course he could have had no control over that whatsoever with the way that subsequent generations would would choose to talk about the music but certainly the generation that was active in the 1950s and 1960s in Europe and also the uh the sorts of composition teaching that went on in the United States at that time tended to be very focused on the technical aspects of his music and particularly the late music and it's possible that that had a, a a significant impact on public perception simply because the technique itself was so much discussed. Do you think do you think that is a possible explanation? It is. It is. And also I have to say some of the performances of the music would would lead one to that too where where it's the emotion isn't there, the feeling isn't isn't there and, and one can see that i i know i i have to say that i had my own experience with um the wind quintet which i always found really difficult to listen to really difficult and then and then one time and this would have been in it was in the 70s and i was in vienna and i heard i heard a viennese quintet play it and they played it as if they were playing strauss and they were bouncing around, and and it was, you know, it was also the visual thing, which was important too. And it was just a completely different experience for me, and can I say enlightened me, based on how they performed it. And then before that, I then I realized that I hadn't really never heard it before. And that, you know, I imagine to some degree that 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 would you could say that about many of the later works that they were, maybe not fully understood by the performers themselves as they played them or they were were playing them mechanically. I'm glad you're bringing this point up because it's it's something that is relevant not only for your father's music but for 
contemporary composition in general, which is that very often if you're coming to a piece that you haven't necessarily heard before, your impression of it is, of course, going to be strongly colored by whatever performance it is that you happen to hear. And if it's not a great performance, or if it's a performance that isn't in phase with what the composer intended, then you can end up with a distorted impression of the piece. And that can really last for a very long time. It's very hard to undo that. And as you say, if you encounter a performance that really brings a piece to life in an almost magical way, then that experience can be utterly transformative. Yeah, well, isn't that a good argument for, for what I think one should do with a new work? Perform it, allow the composer to respond to questions that may be posed, or maybe not, maybe just even make some comments by the composer and then perform it again. I, I think that would, that would be the ideal way for an, a new work to be presented. Well, and this is something that your father, in fact, was involved with in 1918 and onwards with the Society for Private Musical Performances, which was quite an innovative undertaking at the time in terms of how you would present new works to the public. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what that was, and maybe you could tell us if you think that that's a model that could still work today. Well, I think the the idea was there is is that, well... It's a little different today than it was then because there was no media that would present, allow one to listen to, to new works. But at that time, there were a group of musicians, composers, and they would rehearse these works that had heretofore not been heard by the Viennese public. And they would have a sort of a closed society of people that would, would go and listen to them and subscribe to this to be able to, to go. They wouldn't be told what which works are going to be performed. They were told not to respond uh, with clapping or just to, to actually focus on listening to the works. Um, there was no program as such, as I say. There were no critics. I'm think somewhere I said the critics weren't allowed. They had, of course, with my my father writing all of these, I guess they had these rules and things, and he wanted to hear that's very typical of him to have all of these, have it so fully, highly organized. The consequence is that uh, you would hear works by all of the contemporary composers. And incidentally, what's interesting is not his own works were, at, at least for the first, I think, I, what I read somewhere, first 100 or 200 something concerts or something, it didn't include his own works. So it was the idea of educating the public. He had this idea also about that, and I, I've heard this in a lecture of his, where the most important thing is to have a highly educated amateurs, he would call them, uh, amateur musicians. He said that's the the... That's the most important thing for, uh, at that time when they were talking about modern music and, and what one needs to do for modern music for an audience and that they need you need a number of highly educated amateurs. Of course, that was what he was saying in, in Vienna, and then he repeated these things again in, here in America. I've, I heard him say that. I'm glad you mentioned that because one, one of the things that has often struck me about the world of composition today is that there's a strong emphasis on not highly 
educated amateurs, but rather highly specialized professionals. <laughs> and that's a, that's a good point to remember, that what you actually want to cultivate is the sort of person that is not necessarily aiming to be a professional, but who is a music lover and who is aiming to broaden their, their culture. Which, in fact, when he was here in the United States, was there were even though there were a lot of he he had these course courses he would teach uh, at the university and then later on he taught courses at home he taught these Sunday afternoon courses at home but many of the people and this is pretty amazing many of the the closest friends and and the people and the people very much interested in me were not professional musicians. These were these were scientists. Uh, uh, they were in other fields, completely in other fields, and they were sort of uh, they provided an a, an, a, an audience for him. Uh, and I don't mean in a, a musical audience, but a, a friendship for him, where where he could discuss and talk about things, not in the formal musical way. Obviously, he did have his. There were the courses that he taught in the music, but you have these other people. And I mean, these are people that I, I kind of, I remember, and I remember reading about them that were not necessarily, they were not actually musicians and such. I really think that's an important point to emphasize also is, is cultivating an audience that isn't strictly composed of musicians, but that is a much, a much broader one. So it sounds like your father's work is reaching an extremely broad public now and that many of the barriers that might have existed in the past to understanding it and to listening to it, interacting with it, have been removed. So that's an extremely positive thing, as you say. And I think it augurs very well for the future also of his music. I hope so. I think in the long, long term, I look at, uh, with respect to the center in Vienna, and I'm going to go back to that because that's what I'm very much involved in, and one of the things I'd like to see is is something which focuses on his uh, on his innovation and innovation in arts in general. I always thought it, and they had they had often they had something called a Schoenberg Prize. Generally, when they awarded it, it created more enemies than than the single winner that won it. But I think that one should uh, at one time award a Schoenberg Prize in Innovation, because I think in the in the long run, in the long term, that would be something really, really important. And, and I don't think it should be restricted actually to, I think it should be in the arts, um, not necessarily uh, musicians, but just people in the arts that people felt would be innovative, that were in, that are innovative in the way that he would define being innovative. Um, inventive. Uh, I think that's in the long, long term that I think when one thinks about Arnold Schoenberg, I think that's beyond the beyond all of the things that he had uh, accomplished in music and, and painting. I think in general, it's going to be uh, the idea of being innovative the way he was innovative. Well, I think one of the things that fascinates me most about his artistic personality, and, and one of the things that is perhaps the hardest to grasp also, is, as you say, he was very geared towards innovation, and he was an intensely inventive person in many, many respects, not just in terms of the music that he wrote, but many other things as well. 
At the same time, he was completely obsessed with tradition and with his place in tradition. How do you square those two things? Absolutely. He looked backwards and he looked forwards. Uh, there's absolutely no, no doubt. I can take that from the beginning of the Jakob Slider. He felt, for him, it was things are progressive and that you define the, the future by looking at the past. I mean, obviously, that's not necessarily true for everyone, but for him, it was something that was really important. If he created a, a chess set, he would look at conventional chess and then he'd develop his own coalition chess. Uh, all of the things that he, he did, he would he would build on on things of the past. That was, uh, well, you could call it his crux, but that's how he would establish things. So he was conservative, obviously, in that sense. And uh, I think that's the, the best. That, that, that was, that's who he was. He was so serious about preparing for things, about looking at things and studying things. I mean, in sense, you, you hear that his composing was spontaneous, um, but there's there's so much that one can see how he studied what he would call the masters thoroughly. And it makes sense to me if you look and see the things that he that he's done. They didn't just arrive. Um, there was all this the background that he had and that he got it he did himself so i I, that's that's consistent with everything that i i remember uh of him even as a young child where he would he took things so seriously um he'd have these classes these sunday afternoon classes and he would prepare and prepare and prepare for these classes you would think oh well he really wouldn't have to do that but he would make these large size uh, this was before you had uh, whiteboards and chalkboards, and or he didn't have that, but he had just on butcher paper, which he would prepare these lessons for. Then they have all these; they have copies of these things all in the in the in the center. So it, that was just part of part of his his nature. There is something I do want to I I do want to say about him, which is again contradicts, and this has to do with his teaching. And I, I love this quote. It, I mean, I use this because it's it's from the beginning in the uh, Hominil era, which he wrote. And he talks about how he, in his teaching, I, I, I can I read this to, to you? Maybe I should please. get that. Can yeah, I? It's, that would, okay, you can, okay. He says, this is, this is the uh, English translation from the uh, introduction in the Hominil era. In my teaching, I never sought merely quote, to tell people what I know, unquote, better to tell them what they did not know. Yet that was not my chief aim either, although it was reason enough for me to devise something new for each pupil. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that later. I labored rather to show them the nature of the matter from the ground up. Hence, I never imposed those fixed rules with which a pupil's brain is so carefully tied up in knots. Everything was formulated as in instructions that were no more binding upon the pupil than upon the teacher. If the pupil can do something better without the instructions, 
then let him do so. But the teacher must have the courage to admit his own mistakes. He does not have to pose as infallible, as one who knows all and never errs. He must rather be tireless, constantly searching, perhaps sometimes finding. Why pose as a demagogue? Why not be rather fully human? Yeah, it's extraordinary. As as someone who teaches composition myself, I can say that that's extremely good advice. <laughs> those are those are those are wise words. Yeah. Well, or for or for anybody teaching, for that matter, it doesn't even matter the subject. Yeah, and it, and it it I think it explains a lot about him. Although, I mean, it's not it's not a popular thing to put out, and I I. <laughs> I wanted to have them. I kind of made a poster with that on it, and I thought, well, this would be a good idea of something that they could put out at the. There's a Schoenberg Hall at UCLA, and that would be a nice thing to put there instead of <clears throat> his name and date of birth and that he composed twelve tone music or something. I thought instead of that, they could just put that out there. I was a little bit naive because I guess that's not actually the kind of thing that most people in the university would want to have out there encouraging the students to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pointing out that the teacher is not infallible is not on the, <laughs> not a priority for a lot of teachers, I think. <laughs> um, you mentioned something that I'd, I'd like to get into a little bit more, which is that you remember him being extremely conscientious about preparing for the courses that he gave at UCLA. And I'm really curious about this because he taught a very broad range of pupils. On the one hand, he had people like John Cage in his class. He had people who later became famous musicians. But he also taught many people that he had to know had no chance of becoming professional musicians. They were there because they needed to take a course in music or something else, but they weren't necessarily aiming for a career as musicians. So even when he was teaching students that didn't have the aptitude or the desire for that kind of a career. Even with them, he was conscientious. What do you think he was trying to do with those sorts of students? Oh, I, I, I love that, that question. I, lo- I love that topic. And I want to start off with something that Leonard Stein, which was his assistant later on, uh, told me that, and I know my father had written about this too, that he, he would make a, create an exam when he was testing that, when he, at the end of the quarter or different, at the end of the semester, it wasn't quarters. He would make an exam individually for each student based on what he thought their, what would be best for them at their ability. So I think what he was um, willing to do, or what he realized he had to do, is find the student where they are and take them from where they are and not unrealistically expect them to be at a, at a high level, which I think at first there was, it was, it was, that was a difficult thing, but that again was his, that was his character where he would, I wouldn't say get totally depressed, but if you, he'd he'd acknowledge the fact that this is going to be, this is not what he would have expected the lack of experience, but then his, he would resolve this, by writing a course curriculum, and which he did, in fact, for the at the university, he had his ideas of. Uh, I mean, he wrote completely wrote the curriculum for the for the university, and 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 how he felt the what the courses and the kind of courses. Interestingly enough, uh, this is on a tangent, but 
not just for the, he, he felt that the students needed to uh, learn science too. He thought that that was very important. And in fact, at the university, he wanted to do a, a, a program for the aesthetics and he wanted to get scientists at the university and the uh, those in the fine arts and he wanted to have them work together with a symposium. Um, and he had a whole program to try and have them have a ongoing series of discussions because he felt in each group they lacked understanding of the other. The scientists didn't fully understand what the artists were doing and the artists had a lack of understanding of what, what was going on in science and technology and he thought it would be perfect for them to work together. I, it may have been naive of him, but um, it didn't work out. I think there was, there's uh, probably didn't work out because there's territorial things and, and people basically, if you're in one field, you don't want to acknowledge, and you may be very adept in that field, you don't want to acknowledge your lack of understanding. And many people won't, wouldn't want to acknowledge their lack of understanding of another field. So it, it didn't quite work as he had hoped it to work. Well, there's, there's also quite a lot to learn there, many, many things. Of course, the idea that you would prepare an individual exam for every student is something that's virtually unheard of now, but what a brilliant idea, you know? Yeah, you bring it, out... it, there was, uh, I, I, I remember seeing the, one of the exams, the exam for the Leonard Stein, and it, it's sort of, it's cute what he writes. He writes in there, I have prepared an, a nice little exercise for you to do. And then he yeah, asks him to do something with this or create a sonata or something out of this. And it, and, it, and then it's sort of a challenge for him. And he, th- and he thinks that this is going to be a, something that the student is going to enjoy doing, <laughs> not suffering through. But uh, he, he, it, it's interesting. I He had to grade the students at the end. And... Uh, he, I think there was the, I, there's a whole correspondence, this correspondence from the students to him, and then he writes back. And there's one in particular that I noticed where the person had said, "Well, you know, Professor Schimberg, I, you know, I don't think I deserve a, I don't know what the grade letter grade was, a D, you know." I, and then he writes back, "Well, you, you know, you didn't, you didn't do well. You, you." weren't able to do any of the work in the class and you didn't come or a lot of different things. And then uh, he writes, that's the first letter he wrote back. And that's why the letter, the grade was a D. And then the next thing he writes back, I, I've thought it another letter. I've rethought it over and I, you know, I'm regrading you to a C or to a B or something. And I looked at these list of these, the list of these students he had and and he had written the grades that he first had had evaluated them at and then he changed almost all of them and a lot some of them that was just based on all they had to do was complain and he'd make it a higher he'd make it a higher grade so he wasn't really very secure about how to you know how to evaluate or what that some of these students this is um i think you mentioned something about the how he had some you know he had this whole spectrum of students and these would be the the general education kind of uh students that he had so it was it was tough it was uh, a challenge for him but he was kind and uh 
he would uh, respond to their whatever anxieties. And in this case, he was what we would call an easy one to get the grade changed. <laughs> well, his his kindness and his devotion to his students has been has been documented extensively. There's a remarkable book by Deacon Newland called Schoenberg Remembered, where she talks about her experience as a young pupil of Schoenberg and uh, the lengths that he went to to try to help his students. Uh, it's really quite moving. And it just it, it's amazing to me also how much time he must have put into this, because if you're going to give this much individual attention to students, grade them individually, and so on, uh, that's taking time away from other things that he could have been doing, but he seems to have brought an equal amount of devotion and conscientiousness to everything that he did. How do you explain that? He did. He was always he was always doing something. He was always involved, even to the point of when we were, um, if we were driving uh, driving around. At that, at, you know, the, the interesting fact is that the immigrants, the ones, at least the ones from around here, the, the Germans and Austrian, the, the men didn't drive, the women did all the driving. So my mother would drive. And I know that when he would sit, he would sit in the front end of the car and I would be in the back seat. And he'd always have a little notebook with him. So he, it, it would be, well, nowadays, I guess it would be equivalent to the to someone with their iPad or their iPhone or their talk, putting notes in there. Um, he was always writing little notes and whether they were musical notes or notes or whatever it was. And I, I recall one instance, and this has to do with his ability to concentrate and just focus on one thing, but he was always, and the, the question was, how, how could he do it? He was always doing things, so, but even when you think he wasn't, so, so he was conscious of that. Uh, we were at a, my mother would go into a store and she spent a long time, she, shopping and uh he would be sitting in the car and i this one time i clearly remember this this now i can go back 75 years or something and recall this or 76 years he was in the front seat my mother was in the the car was parked my mother was shopping and it was taking a long time for her to come back i guess and then she came back, and then she started up the vehicle by, at that time, it was, you push the button, you put the key in and push the button, the starter button. And there was a den, a large, large roar from the car. So she quickly turned it off and tried it again. Again, there was this amazing little, I mean, just a horrible noise when she tried to start the car. And people came out and they looked around and this went on a little while. And then finally somebody pulled the hood up and they looked underneath and they tried it again. And it again, this noise, just crazy. Nobody could figure out what was happening. And then finally someone got into the front seat, someone else, and walked there. And they noticed that my father, who was sitting <laughs> in the passenger side, had his foot depressing the accelerator all the way to the bottom. <laughs> while he was doing his little notes and is completely oblivious to all of them. So yes, he had the ability to concentrate, to do things. Uh, that That's as a five-year-old, I remember that. And that would, 
I mean, he was always doing things, whether he had at our house. Um, there were two rooms. One, one of the rooms was the room that's actually, there's a replica of that room of the study in, in Vienna at the center. And that one room was, I would say, that's where he did his serious work. There was a, that's where he would do his, his composing. That's where all of his, his book, his music scores and everything were in there. His, his manuscripts were in that room. His paintings, many of his paintings were in there. There was a upright piano in there, which is another story um, that, that he didn't, he's, did not compose at the piano, but he did have a, there were two pianos, but he had a piano in that one room in that studio. And then there was another room, which was separate from this room, where he did his, um, his Boston, his, where he just, he, he did book binding in there and he made all of his toy. He made the toys and things for us there. He had a little, at that time, an Ozolid copy machine Oslid copy machine, which is, was, this was way before Xerox, and it, it was an ammonia process where he could actually copy things, make make large copies through the light going through ammonia-based uh, paper, um, and it was the kind of technology that he admired, and then he would look for a new solution. He would try and use that for, for different things, which he did. Um, in that room is also, in that second room, the the room where he would make things and create things that was to me as actually was the more interesting room of the two so he always he was either in one room or in the other room either making things uh either doing composing this is early on before later on he was not well and he had to he moved upstairs and stayed in his uh, in a chair and actually slept in the chair in the last couple of years of his life but before that he was in one of one of those two rooms either working in the always either working in, in one or the other either on his compositions or his writings or in the other room just uh, creating things that well, today we just call it a workshop or something um, so so yes he was he didn't waste any time that's for sure you mentioned that he had two pianos in his workroom and that he didn't compose. He didn't compose at the piano. No, he had a piano in his workroom, and there was another Ibach grand piano in the living room. So there were, but the piano that was in his workroom was, um, I think it was he was keeping it for someone. But he, I, 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 occasionally he would just go there and play something. But it, it that was not the piano he would play at. He did not, as far as I. You know, no, he did not use the piano. Obviously, he did not use the piano for composing. There's an interesting thing with those pianos, and that probably tells you a little bit more about me than about him uh, with respect to those pianos, because the grand piano, the Ebach, we donated all these things to the center in Vienna. And I clearly remember playing underneath as a maybe a four-year-old or something, under the piano, and there was a middle pedal, which is called what I mean. I mean, you wouldn't know it. And it clips. You push it down, and then you you it'll click if you move it. It clicks in, so you can lock it in. And I remember playing with that. I remember climbing under the piano and clicking that and moving it, moving it back and forth. 
as a little kid playing in there. And when I was in, in this, this is in Merdling, where the piano is now, outskirts of Vienna, I looked at the piano and it, and it didn't have that metal pedal. <laughs> and I wondered, you know, because all the stories that I've been telling, am I making up this stuff or do I, you know, what do I remember and what don't I remember? And then I discovered later on that the piano that was in his workroom had a metal pedal. And so I think contrary to what people have said that we weren't allowed, to, I've been told that that we weren't allowed to go, we weren't supposed to go into that room. I must have gone into into his workroom and played in there. So, you know, there's there's stories about how we had to keep quiet and that's why we were outside and, and that's why, you know, we were somehow when he was composing. But I I don't remember being constrained the way my older brother and sister remember. I may have been just a troublemaker or just a little kid that got by, or maybe because I was younger, they let me do things that, I, that they couldn't do. So, Do you remember hearing him play the piano? Uh, I only remember him playing the harmonium. We had a harmonium in the living room, and he would uh, he would play that, and he played at Christmas, and he would play uh, Christmas not Christmas songs or Christmas carols. He would come and play them for a while. And then we would fool around with it. I, I mean, I would fool around with it and try and see if I could replicate Vox Humana or something like that. But it was awfully a lot of fun uh, playing with it. He didn't, I don't remember him playing the piano. One thing I've often been curious about is his process of working. So you're saying he didn't work at the piano and that's fine. Lots of composers don't work at a piano, but did he not test out his pieces at the keyboard after he wrote them? As far as you know, I, as far as I know, no, I had a discussion with someone about when someone sends him because people would send him their compositions. And then there was this, this discussion about, well, wouldn't he really have to hear them? And I said, well, he did hear them, but he heard them just by looking at the scores. I, and I, I think that's, that was something he, he had the ability to do, I, I think. I mean, I, I can't imagine it being able to do it. I don't know myself, but to some degree, obviously, um, every conductor has to be able to do that to some degree. Right? They have to be able to look at a, when, when they get these, when people send them these scores, they have to look at that and, and hear it. So I think for him, I think he he heard it without playing it. I think that's the thing that for non-musicians is extremely hard to understand how composers are able to do that. I think there's there's no question in your father's case, of course, that he, he would have been able to, certainly. He must have had an absolutely extraordinary ear. There is an anecdote that I remember reading in a book by the American composer George Antile, who knew your father somewhat in the 1940s. And he wrote a, a memoir called Bad Boy of Music, which is notoriously unreliable, but I'm going to quote from it anyway. He says that he attended a rehearsal of the Variations, Opus 31, for orchestra, and he remembers sitting next to your father and hearing him say, well, I'm very curious to hear how this next section is going to come out. And I think Antile at the time took that to mean that he wasn't sure how it would sound, and the performance itself would be the the ultimate uh, demonstration of whether the passage worked or not. I, I really doubt that, because if you listen to this, the early recordings of 
my father, the radio recordings in 1931 or two with, with uh, the radio recording interview that he had with Strobel, I think it was, where he <laughs> he actually goes through the whole, explains all of the, for the variations. So that doesn't make sense. That's a misinterpretation. There's lots of those in that book. So <laughs> what what lang what language was that in? That was in English. Yeah. Okay. So I yeah. I'll leave it at that. His English was it was it's interesting to hear his how he progressed in 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 English, when you listen to the first speeches or the first things that he both in writing, not so much in writing, but more in in how his speaking and how he just improved so quickly and he got to where he actually could do. He actually had long lectures in, in English and it was, he had a, in his, in his, and this was a serious room. He had a large, large dictionary. One of these uh, just enormous sized dictionaries and uh, English dictionaries. And he would look up the words always, and he was so careful about the words, about which words. So, so and sometimes that created a problem. So he'd use some word that you know probably has been obsolete for many, many, many years. But he w he was he always wanted to have the precise word, which created problems then for translations of things like the you know his. And, well, Hamanila for one, but uh, even things like the Stylin idea and and other uh, his collection of essays and things, some of them which were from German, and he would be always have uh, spirited discussions is a, is a good phrase with with the translators. And you were mentioned Dika Newling, and that was she was one of her she was just astounding person. Just that's uneven unfair even to say just that because she was very young she was i think 13 or 14 years old when she came to study with my father and she did she was she was able to do translations uh, from french german english and this is at a, like i think at 15 years old or something like that but she would have uh, long discussions with my father i i just i don't know that i didn't hear these i've just read the I've read some of the correspondence, and uh, it's it's fascinating um, about how he he really appreciated her ability to translate. But uh, he was very 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 concerned about translations and whether they were really uh, sufficient. Uh, to describe what he had meant when he wrote it, let's say, in German, and then how it becomes English translation. So your father learned English relatively late in life. I think he would have been 60 or after after 60 that he, that he started to learn English. What about your mother? How was your mother's English? Oh, my God. Her, her English was, was, was better. Uh, her pronunciation wasn't so good when and I came home and I said, I'm hungry. She said, I bought some apples. I said, what? I bought some apples. I had no idea what she was talking about. And then, you know, <laughs> finally, I got found out, you know, I saw the apples and she bought some apples or whatever. So the, the she was, she was um, actually certainly better at first. Her English was, was quite good then. 
pronunciation was not so good, but uh, her, she actually was, um, she wrote too. She had a nom de whatever it is, Jolly Joker, she called herself. Um, and, you know, she did the libretto for uh, one of his operas. I'm curious about your mother's role in the household, because obviously your father had you relatively late and presumably in the last 10 years of his life. I think you could say late. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that's pro- it's probably fair to say that. Um, and so she so she had three children and presumably your father couldn't participate much in the life of the household due to his teaching engagements, his work, and also his health problems as he got older. So the entire burden of managing the household must have fallen on her shoulders. It did, but um, he surprisingly, he, he was also involved in, in a great deal in, in everything. So we, it, it's not as if he was always ill. Um, we did take walks together as a family. He wasn't, he, he, there are some things that I'm never, I'm never quite sure how much I should ascribe to my mother and my father, but I know that together they would do things. I, there's a great story about, I saw them one evening, they were at the dining room table and they were making, I don't know, they were dealing with just creating, making something and I didn't know what it was. I said, you know, what's that? And I know that I was five years old at the time and then you'll, understand why when I tell the story the two of them were in the on this table and they he had uh, apparently collected at that time there was uh, when they had cigarette packages they put some silver foil in there with the, with the cigarettes and he had people save that silver foil for him this was before we had aluminum wrap but there were a number of those on there and there was some uh, cardboard and then there were some dog food cans cleaned up dog there were the we had always had lots of animals and dogs we had and there was dog food can they would come in cans cans of dog food and they were cleaned up and and then there were some other things there to wire and stuff and i posed the question i said well you know what are you doing daddy what what are you making what's going on and then they said oh well you know you'll find out well, that's not, you know, you don't you tell a five-year-old, you'll find out that's not going to work. Um, you'll see tomorrow. Okay. Okay. So I, it was bedtime for me. And then the next day I wanted to know what it was. And I didn't get to know what it was until I went to my kindergarten class. And we had preparing a play. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And my mother and father brought into the classroom these little hatchets for the Seven Dwarfs, all with silver blades, and little can, tin cans, which were the lanterns, and with wire on them for, the, for our play, so that they had my mother and father had constructed these things the night before. So yes, he was. He it was my mother was involved and my father, and they were involved together in in many of these things, and these toys and things or things that they made. But he wasn't. Uh, I wouldn't say he was excluded from these things. And there's stories of the peanut butter sandwiches and things that he would make 
for us. And he would be preparing these things too. So he was doing what, well, I guess a progressive father would have done at that time. You know, so it, he wasn't. It, it wasn't as if my mother was only my mother was doing, although she had the burden of everything. And uh, it was difficult for her. It was terribly difficult after he died. We never felt we were poor. We certainly weren't. We had a wonderful home and, and a wonderful life. But I was surprised to find out that she had to borrow money for his, his funeral. I mean, I discovered that later on. So she didn't have any outside help running the household, anything like she that? She had her mother helped then. That was my grandmother, which was um, her brother was Rudolf Kolisch, the violinist. And their mother was Henrietta Kolisch, who lived with us. And so she, she helped at the house. And that was not... <laughs> <laughs> that was a problem or my my father was not so she did not like the idea that she could would come in and dust as he said and, and so he excluded her from his one of the studies whereas we could go in there she wasn't allowed to go in there because she she mixed things up or tried to rearrange or straighten things up that was a a family maybe more conventional mother-in-law family problem that existed. So uh, one thing that I really am trying to understand is the incredible disparity, let's say, between the way your father would have been raised and where he was raised and where it was that you grew up and how you understood those things when you were a child. So your father was born in 1874. His father, Samuel Schoenberg, your grandfather in 1838. So there are wide gaps between the generations. And the world that they would have grown up in would have been radically different from the one that you knew as a child. How did you view that? Did you have any sense of connection to Austrian culture when you were a child? Absolutely none. And we've talked about, I've talked about this with my brother and sister too. And I, and I think it was, pro, it was certainly intentional that we were brought up as whatever, young American children, you know, to grow up in this environment. And even though we all learned, or well, we learned German out of necessity. That is, we wanted to understand what our parents were saying to each other. So we all spoke, we all, we were smart enough not to let them know that we could understand what they were saying when they thought they were saying things surreptitiously in German. Um, all of us could learn German, but we had no, at least I didn't, um, and I'm pretty sure neither, maybe my sister to some degree did, but that was much awareness what happened and, and what was happening. So no, um, not as a child. Uh, and only later on did I did I learn these things. And I, I think I think that was intentional. I think they wanted they wanted us to grow up as an American family and adapt quickly and easily. One thing I do know, which I discovered only later, there was something which we had here, which was called uh, Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts. And for some crazy reason, I wasn't allowed to be in it, whereas all the other little kids in my classes later on were in it. And then I discovered later on that, that of course, for, for him, for my father and for my mother, you know, they associated that 
with Hitler Jugend, and so it made it made sense to me later on. I was a child, of course, I had not, not a clue. Actually, my brother and sister, maybe now that I think about it, they may have been more aware of things. Um, I, I certainly wasn't. Do you think your father was intentionally distancing himself from that culture at that point in his life? Perhaps no, because I, of the, no? No, 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 no. Absolutely not. I don't think he, I think he was creating a safe haven for us, but not for him. Um, no, I think he was, I mean, you can see in his correspondence, he was knowledgeable and aware and these are things that I can I, I didn't obviously I didn't know about the correspondence then but I can see now that of course he was he, he was aware of things and and involved completely involved in what in what was happening in Europe and I mean he wouldn't have been able to write some of the things later on he wouldn't have been able to to write the uh, survivor from Warsaw if he weren't it's just that I as a young child wasn't uh, so I think it's to some degree it's protect. It was just to protect us. Yeah. So your parents spoke to you in English then. They spoke to us in English. I think sometimes in German, but I th- pretty much, at least with me, it was it was in English. Yes. So in addition to the siblings that you grew up with, you had also two half siblings, Georg and Trudy or Gertrude. The latter, uh, I believe, passed away in 1947, if I'm not mistaken. Did you have any contact with that branch of the family at all? I, I had, I at, when I was a child, or never, never. And I remember when she died, that would be two days. I remember that was the first time I'd seen my father just absolutely crying, just sitting down and, and just, I mean, it was a horrible experience for me to see that. Um, so he had, I guess the news had just arrived and, uh, it was, I had, and I didn't, I wasn't able to comprehend what was happening at that time. Okay. So that, the, the, your father's earlier life and the children from his first marriage, it wasn't something that was present yeah. at least up was, to that point you weren't aware of. Ab- absolutely not. No, I didn't. I mean, it's, it's, I, it just was wasn't anything I, I I had not known anything about it. It was only, of course, later on that I became aware. And when I was in Vienna, then I became really knew a lot of found out much more about it. But I can't speak for my my sister or my brother about that. So you were in the house then in Brentwood Park when your father was writing works such as the String Trio, the Fantasy for Violin and Piano, all of these wonderful pieces. I wonder at what point you realized that your father was not an ordinary person, that he was not a, a typical father. That's that's really a hard question because I think that's I I think he was a t- um, your father is a whoever is your father is a typical father. I didn't have anyone else to compare it with um, at, th- at that you know at that early age. I suppose I could say that I wasn't running out and doing little athletic endeavors with him, but I didn't, you know, I never was anything strange about that, odd about that. You know, later on, I thought about it and I was aware of it. So did I consider it, was it different than, well, of course it was in the sense, for one thing, he was home, um, later later on and so that was where other 
kids' fathers would be at quote at work. So he was because he had already been retired pretty much from UCLA, and um, he wanted to keep teaching there. But that was another that's another long story. You know, I really really don't don't have anything else else I can say about that that I really recall. Was there a point at which you realized what a great figure he was? I mean, that's probably a hard thing to grasp when you're a child. Yeah, I, you know, I, I remember, and I don't know when I posed the question, you know, you know, you know, how great he is or how great. And that did come up because people would, yes, people would comment and say, oh, you're, they would talk about him. Oh, he's such a, you know, (laughs) I can joke because they would say, oh, he's such a, he's such a world renowned conductor. Okay, <laughs> and so, <laughs> but uh, I, you know, people would would say, "Oh, he's he's so famous and that stuff," and and you know, in America, fame was based on uh, popularity and and uh, wealth. So there was a conflict there. So I was, you're getting, I'm getting a different, I'm hearing from people, "Oh, he's so famous," and yet when you hear what's considered famous here, it's not his kind of fame. Yes, I, I, I heard it a lot, but you know, I didn't, again, I didn't have it, didn't really have it to compare it with many things as a young child. So I think I probably pretty much dismissed it until, until later on. People didn't, I didn't, you know, and in retrospect, I didn't think I, we were being, treated differently in any way um didn't act differently uh i do i don't think interestingly the people that he taught us to admire growing up were not the necessarily the the people that were coming to his courses or the musicians or the composers they were the person that was delivering the mail or the person that was bringing the ice for the ice box at that time we had an ice box the person that was uh, delivering water we had bought some later on we had bottled water and my brother tells a story of the person that made hot dogs that did them really well or something like that so he, we grew up with this idea it's not and I, I mean I later realized this um, it's not who the person was it's how they did what they were doing that was important. And that was instilled in us and I and that had to be from him. And it's it's really interesting um, that it wasn't like there was if someone uh, I always use this particular cellist uh, Foyamon, but I think he died before I was born, but I remember the name so much because for a child there couldn't be a better name. For anyone than being called a fireman or foyaman, so it wasn't Klemper or foyaman or those people that were the people that we somehow were supposed to grow up admiring. It was these people that were just whatever doing their jobs, simple way. And I, I'm almost sure that would have been from him. That was that feeling that I got. So one major event that took place while your father was alive that. Uh... I've often wondered about, in 1945, September 1945, Anton Webern was accidentally killed in mysterious circumstances. And I've often wondered what your father's reaction to that event was. Presumably he didn't find out about it right away. 
You would have been four or five years old when that happened. I wouldn't have any idea. You know, I, I'm the same as you. I read about this, and that's it much later. Um, it was never, I mean, even later on, I don't even remember anything, even being dis discussed about it. And I would have to go through his, his letters and his writings, which are all incidentally available and easily accessible with no constraints and by the family so that anybody that would like to go through any of those things or read them. I'm answering your question in a, in a kind of a strange way, but for anybody that would like to see the correspondence, it's all there. Um, mm -hmm. it, 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 the center has it and the Library of Congress has it. He did an interesting thing with letters that he wrote when he wrote back a holograph, when he hand wrote a response, he would use um, carbon paper on the back of the letter that he received so that he would have a copy of what he wrote to the person. Is that understandable what I what I just said? I don't maybe yeah. not. Yeah. Yeah. So that that meant that in the archives of his collections, of the, even though the people may have not have kept his his letter to them we have a copy of his letter to them this was before he would you obviously if you're typing and you put in and when typewriters which existed then you put in a piece of carbon paper and you have a copy of it but this was when he was handwriting letters so we have copies of what he wrote to people on the back of what they have may have written to him or if not he would have handwritten had made handwritten he would have made copies of his responses. And interestingly enough, that's where the people often they have not they didn't bother to keep his letter to them. So but we have a, there are copies of those again, just accessible through the center in Vienna or at the just as of last week at the Library of Congress in uh, in Washington. It's, it's all open, open source. Yeah, we should point out that the Arnold Schoenberg Center in Vienna has done an extraordinary job of digitizing its archive and making these manuscripts and letters and other documents available to everybody. I would just like to know a couple of things in closing. You've been very generous with your time. I, I thank you for that. Tell us a little bit about what the, the Schoenberg Center does and also about what it's going to be doing moving forward, if there are any particular projects for the future that are uh, underway at the moment. Yes, I'm very excited about the, the center itself. It, it has tremendous support, first of all, which makes it, it uh, makes it easier to, to do things there. It has a fantastic uh, staff. The archivists and the, and the director now are just, it's the crucial part of what you need. I mean, we, you can have all the materials you want, but if you don't have the people there, they're able to know what to do with it. They're able to know what to do with it, and they do it really, really well. There are so many possibilities now, and even now we're celebrating the 70th, or celebrating, I don't know if it's the right word, we're commemorating the 70th year of his death, and we're in 2024, it's going to be commemorating the 150th year of his birth. And since we do everything by tens and twenties and fifties and hundreds, so that will be somehow that's considered important. And 
we have lots and lots of possibilities of things that they're going to be doing there, which are really very, very special. And basically everything is going to be, the idea is to make everything easily, and it has been easily accessible. And there's there are many, many programs that we have there that include having people come there and have having scholarships to be able to live in Merdling and work at the at the archives for or with the materials there. So there's there are things that are going to happen there, and then there are things that I hope they're going to do. I'm constantly, I guess to some degree, annoying them, but with more and more ideas of possible things. And I mentioned one of them that I think this idea of innovation, something to do with a prize for innovation, that's something that they can do. But basically, there's going to be projects I, I hope they're going to do a, with his music. And I hope they'll maybe we'll do a Piero Lanier tour. I'd love for them to do the Piero Lanier tour that they, they can actually have people go around anywhere in the world. I hope there's some ideas of having a, a program with China and Japan, um, which they're already been doing and working on. We're sort of using the excuse of 2024, or I am, to uh, uh, institute lots of lots of new programs. We're going to be able to use all the technology. They've just, they just, and this is early, and this is for the 70th year, they just released all of the recordings um, and by recordings, I mean the records, the phonograph records that he had in his collection. And I guess there were also some and tape recordings, magnetic tape recordings. And that's all been done by a company in Austria. And again, it's fascinating. Everything is accessible, easily, easy to listen. They created something which they call uh, linking two continents through sound or in sound. And they've made this just absolutely wonderful link to this uh, company, which act where you can listen to him, and you can you can locate you use the geography so you can locate the city where this uh, emanated from, whether it's the, uh, a voice recording of his, or it's a very early performance of of one one of his works. And you can hear the Kolish Quartet performing. And it's it's one of the things that they've done already. But in the future, they're going to be doing many, many, many more of these things. Uh, you know, I, if this were one of these advertisements, you'd give them a, a website to, to contact if you wanted to. So Right. So for anybody who doesn't have the opportunity to visit the center directly in Vienna, uh, I can point out that there's an extraordinary website which is at www.schoenberg.at. And it's just an amazing resource for anybody who's interested in, uh, in Schoenberg's music and, and work. One last question. Um, out of your father's vast output, is there a particular piece that you could say is your favorite? Well, <laughs> I have about 50 favorites. But um, <laughs> I, again... Depending on the mood that I'm in, and it, and it really does depend on the mood that I'm in, I love listening to the girl eater. So if I had to pick one, I would pick the girl eater. Um, I'm not going to use the word love, but I really enjoy listening to Moses and Aaron. So those are the major ones. 
if I'm not doing anything particular that I just want to not concentrate on anything, and I, then I'll go listen to the Naturno, which I don't think many people have heard. It's for um, strings and harp. And of course, Piero Lanier, but then I, I, that's if I'm in a more serious mood. And I could keep going on for a number of others, the second string quartet. The Herzgewächse, uh, which again, that's something that not many people have heard. Jakob Sleiter. I would have said Verklatte Nacht, but that's, I've heard that too much. So I'm getting a sense that all of his pieces are are your favorite. I, no, I don't. No, favorites. You, you, if you said favorites, then I would have would have been easier for me to respond. I'm glad you mentioned Herzgewächse, which which is not a piece that you hear about often enough. I think, and it's a it's an amazing piece of music. Very very strange sounding, uh, a very unusual instrumentation, but uh, an intensely beautiful and expressive piece. Oh, and I forgot the cello concerto, which again, depending on the mood that I'm in, the Mon Cello Concerto. Yep, that's a well. That's also a fascinating piece for all kinds of reasons. Uh, it's it's a very thorough, not adaptation, but rewriting really of a of a concerto by G. W. Mon uh, that he turned into a, a a thoroughly personal and individual work. It's very very beautiful. I want to thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been a very uh, fascinating conversation for me and uh, a great honor to have the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you so much. I'm glad that you posed so many really wonderful questions and that you gave me the opportunity to uh, talk about him, uh, my father, and to talk about the future at the center in Vienna. <laughs>